everyone, and welcome to another episode of the InQtel podcast. I am your host, Vishal Sandacera, and on today's show, we're sitting with Charlie Greenbacker, who's the Vice President of Analytics here at InQtel. Uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about the rise of the smart machines, more specifically the rise of artificially intelligent uh, devices. I like to call them smart machines or intelligent machines. Charlie, what do you like to call them? Um, toys. Toys. Excellent. <laughs> uh, Exciting things to play with. Charlie, you're the right person to talk to about uh, this particular topic, primarily because of your exposure, your expertise, your deep domain knowledge about the subject matter, sure. primarily, which is why I think everyone uh, that's listening should be particularly excited and interested in what you have to say. Tell us quickly before we begin, uh, just a little bit about what you do here at InQtel uh, and how you've gotten into this space. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I'm on the tech staff at InQtel. I lead our analytics team, so all of our investments in AI, machine learning, data science, uh, business intelligence tools, anything like that at all. Uh, myself and my team are the ones that are working with our investment team members to go out and find new companies, figure out what they're working on, uh, see if we're interested in them. We you know, diligence their products and technologies and figure out if they're a right fit for the uh, customers that we support. Cool. So, Charlie, uh as you know, I, I come out of the labs here at InQtel. We we do a lot of work with AI. The, the buzz the buzzword seems like is you know artif artificial intelligence, AI, mm -hmm. machine learning, deep learning. Um, a lot of this stuff isn't new though. Um, and yeah. in a lot of your work, you postulate, hey, look, AI has been it's been around. It's not it's not something new or novel to be to, to sort of uh, to marvel at, at as completely innovative. It's it's, it's actually old. Tell us tell us why you think that way. Yeah, I mean, artificial intelligence is a core element to computer science. You know, people have been working on AI since at least the 50s, uh, you know, various different approaches. There's been a lot of uh, starts and stops with, you know, uh, the community getting really excited about capabilities and unrealistic expectations and had, you know, their, their hopes and dreams come crashing down and hearts broken. And so we've seen these waves over and over and over again. Uh, we're back absolutely at the top of, if you want to call it a hype cycle, top of the hype cycle again. You know, one of the things that's different, though, is that we're really starting to see practical, real-world applications uh, of AI, machine learning, deep learning, et cetera, that are, you know, touching the lives of uh, almost everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, to establish some context, you know, uh, you're absolutely correct, actually. I, I remember hearing a lot about this concept of the AI winter, and I, I yep. suppose that was, I don't know, long before, uh, I suppose, either one of you or I there's, were around. There's been a couple of them, but yeah. Yeah. How much How much of what's happening now uh, in the sort of the rise proliferation of AI is, is new maybe or, or how much of it is sort of to be continued or recurring from the stuff in the past and, and why now is it that we're interested again? Yeah, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Um, there's a lot of different driving factors behind this sort of resurgent, uh, resurgence in AI. Uh, you know, the hardware is better. Uh, there's a lot more data to work with. Um, you know, we've, uh, the, the research community has figured out some uh, previously, you know, difficult problems in uh, AI, particularly in, in neural networks. Um, you know, neural networks as a thing have been around for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, back when I was in grad school, um, sort of after, you know, in sort of the spring after the most recent uh, AI winter, um, you know, if you had tried to submit a paper to a conference, or journal, workshop, what have you, uh, and you were, you were, um, your approach was based on neural networks, it would get almost rejected out of hand by the editors who would say, yeah, we tried that in the 80s and it, it didn't really work, right? Mm 
Uh, flash forward to today, if you're back in grad school and you're trying to get a paper accepted and you're not using neural networks, <laughs> it's going to get rejected out of hands by the editors who are going to say, that's, that's what we use, right? That's what works. Charlie, you mentioned, uh, before, we dig, before we dig into sort of the, you know, the state of uh, consumer AI and enterprise AI uh, and, and devices in each of those verticals, you, you had, uh, in our previous discussions uh, before today's podcast, you had mentioned that, that you know, we often forget that AI is actually a very common part of, of most of our lives these days. Yeah. As folks who, say, use uh, an inbox with, with a spam filter or as folks that maybe get a recommendation for yeah. either a piece of content or something to buy online. Yeah. Uh, can you speak to us a little bit about uh, how is it that this stuff made it into our lives without us really even knowing about it? And more importantly, do you think that it'll uh, continue to be uh, a larger part of our lives going forward? When something comes into our lives as a product, as a service or something that we access, the real you know, magic of that product is often that we don't even think about how it's working, right? Every time somebody calls you on your iPhone and you answer it, you're not thinking about what's actually making that phone call happen. I just want it to work. Yeah, you just want it to I work. I want to be delighted by the fact that it works. And as far as you know, it's magic, right? right? Um, it is though, right? But there's a, there's a ton of you know, engineering involved and infrastructure and all kinds of stuff that is invisible to you. Every time you start your car and it just works, right? You don't need to know the inner workings of the internal combustion engine and how an automatic transmission works and all that sort of thing. It just works, right? That's right. And, and you take it for granted, right? And, and I think a lot of that is really happening with some of these products that we're seeing, right? Like, uh, you know, a couple of things that you mentioned. Every time you don't get spam in your Gmail inbox, AI did that. Every time you buy something on Amazon or watch something on Netflix based on a recommendation engine, mm -hmm. AI did that. Every time Waze saves you 15 minutes in traffic on the DC Beltway, AI did that. AI did that. At its, at its simplest sense, when you say AI did that, yeah. let's deconstruct that a bit. Sure. What is it that uh, I, I think of AI and I think of some sort of uh, automation that that is very intelligently taking an action on my behalf, yeah. making a decision for me so that I don't have to. How do you think about uh, AI did that? What does that mean? Yeah, there's a lot of different definitions um, and you can get really you know, lost in the semantics of it. The way I sort of think about AI writ large is um, enabling a computer to perform a task that otherwise we would think would require a human to do something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean it's doing it the way a human would or uh, that it you know, quote unquote thinks the way a human does or makes the decision the same way. Um, but it's a system that, that performs a task that if we didn't have the system, we really would kind of need a human to do that, right? Just like a, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you ask the, the sommelier for a recommendation on a wine, right? Mm -hmm. We think of that as a human task, but we can build recommendation engines that could potentially even provide a better recommendation because they could access your history of every single wine that you've ever uh, uh, tasted and, and what you thought about it and you know did you buy it again or give it a thumbs up versus this sommelier is just meeting you for the first time and he or she may ask you some questions to give them that information um, but you know we can build a system to do that right. job and, and similarly like with spam you know one man's spam is another man's you know uh, uh, hot deal of the day right. right that they're getting right a discount on whatever right um, but being able to have a system that, that reviews every single piece of email that's addressed to you. Most people don't realize there's a lot of stuff under the surface. Uh, there's a lot more spam that you're getting that's not even making it into your spam box. Right, just right? getting so you're getting inundated. There's, you're being, you're the, whatever mail server you're subscribed to is getting inundated right. with all types of spam. And really what's getting into your, into your spam box is the stuff that's kind of on the bubble, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of stuff that's even you know worse that you're never going to see, 
and you know, rather than having to have you as the, the, the inbox owner have to wade through all of that stuff, like we all remember back in the day, you know, the early days of, of email, and you know, let's say my, you know, every now and then I check my Yahoo email and it is flooded with spam. Yeah. Um, you know, not requiring the human to have to go in there and arbitrate and decide, is this a message that I care about or is this you know, actually spam? You know, it was a decision that otherwise we would assume you need a human to do. Right. Fortunately, we don't need to do that anymore. And we can save a lot of time by having the machine decide, you know, is this legitimate mail for Bashal or is this, uh, you know, spam discount on all weather tires or something? Right. And, uh, you know, Growing it gets Canada. to the point where we develop a trust, right? You don't have to understand exactly how that spam filter is working, mm -hmm. but you see it perform over and over again. And over time, you develop trust in it. And it's a, maybe a bit of a black box to you, but you've built that trust in this system, sort of like you trust your car not to explode when you turn it on, uh, and it just becomes sort of the uh, product that we use every day, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and, and interesting. Let's continue our discussion around the concept of consumer and, and enterprise artificial intelligence. Yeah. So when we think about artificial intelligence, where are you seeing it um, moving quickly? Uh, where are you seeing it not moving at all, or even moving slowly, and, and why do you think that is the case? You know, so going back to something we said a minute ago, we don't even necessarily realize it, but there are elements of AI, machine learning, et cetera, that are baked into almost every software application, modern software application that we're using each day, mm -hmm. at least at home. <laughs> and, and this is kind of a, you know, a somewhat counterintuitive notion, um, but consumer AI is really outpacing enterprise AI. And, and what do I mean by that, right? So you go home and, you know, as an individual consumer, essentially for free, or what we can you know, afford as individual consumers, we've got access to some really, really, really impressive capabilities from you know, uh, an Amazon Alexa, mm -hmm. right, uh, Echo, um, you know, a smart camera from Nest or Hello that can you know, alert you every time it sees a person walk past its sort of field of view. Uh, but not alert you when the, the, the wind blows a tree that it can see, you know, or so it's not just motion. Or by that has nothing to do with, right. with your doorway uh, at all. All different, all kinds of stuff like that, that you, like, what a, what a time to be alive, Seriously. right, Vishal? Like, what your house could potentially have in terms of these, these capabilities. But then you get to work, right? Uh, really kind of regardless of where you work, as an enterprise IT customer, you don't necessarily have access uh, to products at that level, right? Even though as an enterprise IT customer, you have comparatively unlimited budgets, you know, when, when contrasted with what you're going to, you know, buy at home, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the sort of the capabilities you have at home are, are typically better than what you get at work. In right? regards to specifically these, these AI. These types enabled. of things, yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. So uh, I'll speak from personal experience at... My home is, is is full of a uh, you know this isn't a podcast about talking Wired. about yeah, yeah it's not it's not we're not particularly peddling any products here but uh, I do have one brand of smart assistants all throughout my every room's sure. got one of these things yeah we talk to it I ask it for weather I yeah. ask it for the news I ask it to play some music turn on and off my lights yeah. uh, draw my shades all the sorts of stuff and but then when you go on our corporate SharePoint is there some sort of recommendation engine that says hey I know Vishal I know what he's interested in here are some really cool things that you should want to read all. today. Not no. at all. As a matter of fact, no. it's, uh, it, it, I'm actually quite inefficient uh, <laughs> at, at our SharePoint, just to say that maybe it speaks about me as an employee. But, you know, what's interesting is uh, uh, a point that my wife, she, of course, my wife and I both live in this home that I just referred to as being completely wired. You know, she's got a lot of concerns about privacy. I'm sure that, that yeah. this topic is just rife and yeah. going a whole rabbit hole for that. 
you mentioned that you know we don't have as much access to these AI-enabled products, uh, these, these smart assistants and things that can act on our behalf here in, in corporate environments. And I, I suspect you'll talk a little bit more about why you think that is. I'm going to presuppose, does anybody, does anything ha, uh, ha, in, in your answer have to do with sir, the concern on privacy at, at uh, all? To a degree, yeah. So um, there's, there's a couple of different reasons that this is the case. Privacy is one of them. Um, you know, businesses, corporations nat naturally have propri proprietary data, proprietary information that they're not comfortable just, you know, uh, uploading to Amazon servers or Google servers or, or what have you or trusting with some fly-by-night startup, right? Hawking the latest wares, that sort of thing. Right. Which is understandable, sure. Um, another sort of big reason behind this, you know, dichotomy and why consumer capabilities are, are outstripping enterprise ones is... Um, if you're targeting a consumer application, you can potentially support a billion users with virtually identical use cases. So very, very, very cookie cutter stuff. Right. Um, especially if the, 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 the product has some sort of capability to adapt itself over time and personalize itself to its experiences with you. But coming in the door, right, I buy an Echo Dot, you buy an Echo Dot. Day one, those are identical devices, yeah. right? It's Over just the time, last it mile that it gets, a little bit. gets right. customized, right? Um, and, and that's, you know, so we get these massive economies of scale where you can mm -hmm. build, you can invest a ton of money into developing mm -hmm. products that have a massive potential, you know, total addressable market mm -hmm. with very, very, very little customization required on the part of the, the developer, the engineer to make it work for all of those users. Right. Contrast that with, you know, trying to support enterprise customers, enterprise IT customers. Um, where you have to cater to each of their, you know, unique needs. It's always um, a different 80-20 problem, right? Where, yeah, 80% of it may be the same, but every every company does things a little bit differently. And We're they snowflakes. Exactly. We're all snowflakes, and we want, you know, we expect the solutions to adapt to our problems, right? Right. And this is why you end up finding a lot of shops just end up, you know, in general, blanket statement, a lot of proprietary development work gets done. A lot of uh, avoid buy versus build, buy versus build decisions, yeah. uh, you know, go one way or the other based on this, this particular sort of dynamic you're describing. Yeah, so it's like, uh, you know, uh, you walk into a, you know, clothing store, you find a suit on the rack, you try it on, like, yeah, this doesn't quite fit. I need to buy a bespoke suit instead, right? right? And, you know, Vishal, you're a very well-dressed man. I'm sure you understand that a bespoke suit costs a heck of a lot more than buying something off the rack and having it tailored, right? That's true. And so this, I think there's an analogy to be made here where, you know, we're all buying suits off the rack, which can be mass-produced. And, yes, there's a little last-mile tweaking to sort of customize it mm -hmm. uh, with the additional benefit here. If you don't even need a tailor to do it, it's like the suit knows how to adapt itself to, to fit your unique body shape. But you don't have to go in and get a bespoke suit every single time just because, you know, you need to take it in a little bit here and let out a little bit over <laughs> there, right? Yeah. Um, so what do we do? I, 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 yeah. I tend to believe that as a consumer of this stuff that there's there's lots of hidden potential in making us more efficient in the corporate Absolutely. world if we can adopt some of this stuff. What needs to change? Yeah. How do we need to think about this differently in order so, to make it worthwhile? So the traditional instinct is to say, let's build, let's make suits, right? The mm -hmm. suit on the rack isn't a perfect fit. So I'm going to uh, either hire my own uh, tailor to uh, make bespoke suits for me all day long. That's the natural thing, right? So you, you, companies will go and they're doing some sort of buy versus build evaluation and they'll look at the products that are available out there mm -hmm. and none of them are an exact match for what their needs are. So they say, you know what, forget it. We're going to bite this bullet and build it in-house or hire someone to build something specific uh, for us, uh, which is incredibly expensive. 
uh, fraught with risk. Yeah, it likely may uh, not work out in the end. You might not even get to that 80% solution that was already available on the rack, right? right? So, you know, what can we what can we do about it? I think, you know, the, the as an enterprise IT customer, the more you can adapt your seemingly quote unquote unique needs to resemble generic consumer applications, the easier you're going to find the, the easier it's going to be for you to find solutions that fit, right? So this is, you know, a, a pretty um, major shift in the traditional mindset behind, you know, enterprise procurement, you know, being willing to adapt your needs to accommodate the solutions that are out there, rather than expecting the world to change to accommodate you. Right. And that's how you're going to be able to tap into all of these uh, uh, capabilities, all of these things out there. You adapt yourself a little bit to take advantage of, of this this massive tsunami of capabilities rather than expecting, you know, everything to come to you and adapt to you and change you. If we get right? off our high horse you. just a little bit. I wouldn't say it that way, <laughs> right? But, but, but you know, uh, uh, be flexible, right? Be adaptive. Makes sense. Adapt, inter, uh, uh, improvise, overcome, right? The, the military will say. Yeah. Having that sort of um, flexibility in mind, adapting your changes, you know, come a little, you know, not even necessarily meet them halfway, but change what you're doing a little bit to reduce the friction to allow you to just be able to to grab these commercial sure. capabilities that are just waiting there for you to use. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense uh, in an abstract sense. Look, I think compromise always ends up yielding better results than being hardlined on either side. Uh, that works both in corporate and personal environment, personal relationships as well. Let's talk about, let's flip the equation, Charlie, and talk a little bit about, so we talked a lot about us as consumers and then we, we further subdivided into consumer you know, versus enterprise. Sure. Let's talk about the folks making these technologies. Where does this folks, all come from? Where does it even come from? Yeah. What magical elves are making this possible and how are they getting their hands on this sort of stuff that, that are required to even make these things? Yeah, so um, I don't know if I would even call it a secret, but you might say there's a, there's a dirty secret out there that a lot of the companies, a lot of the big consumer-facing technology companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera, that we think of as you know very, very innovative companies, and I'm not going to tell you that they're not, but much of the innovation that these big companies are getting, mm -hmm. they're not really building in-house, right? They're, they're accessing this innovation by acquiring startup companies, mm -hmm. right? So, so this is, again, maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but, you know, Google's, uh, you know, the Googles of the world, you know, get a lot of their innovative products and services. They come in the door by, you know, going out and funding them and eventually maybe acquiring these companies bringing them in and integrating them into the mothership. Right. right. And I anticipate the reason you know a lot about this is partly because of your sort of the interventions you have with the startups in the position you sit in exactly. uh, allows you to spend a lot of time learning about what and they're so up to and what they're doing. You see these examples over and over and over again, right? So when you think of, um, you know, big, well-known products at Google, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, Search and Gmail, yeah, those were built in-house, right? Those were built, you know, those those product uh, projects were initiated by Google employees um, or, you know, Larry and Sergey when they were still grad students. Right. Um, but so many of the other products that we think of as core Google products, from AdSense to Google Maps to Google Earth to Android to YouTube and so on, those started somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody else, I mean, famously, you know, YouTube was an independent company before it was acquired by Google. That's right. You know, uh, uh, Google Maps and Google Earth started somewhere else as a completely, uh, you know, completely unrelated to Google until you know, Google saw, found out about them and said, wow, this is really awesome. You know, we need to make that 
part of, part of our dis uh, technological distinctiveness, right? right? And acquire them and eventually assimilate them and, and it becomes a Google product. And this happens, you know, Google's just one example. This happens over and over and over again where, you know, innovation is, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, sometimes it's easier to cultivate that outside of a big company. Let a small company, you know, take chances, take, you know, technology risks. And if it, if it, if it works, hey, pick the winners and bring them in and make that part of, uh, part of your distinctiveness. Charlie, in your role uh, and in the subject matter expertise you've developed, you spend a lot of time looking outwards. And what I mean by this is outside of the US. Um, you spend a lot of time analyzing markets, looking at market trends. What are you seeing outside of the United States? And, and, and what are you seeing and how does it compare to what's going on inside the United States when it sure. comes to yeah. artificial intelligence uh, development? So th this is a great segue from the last thing we were talking about, which sort of, you know, the, the sort of conclusion from that and then the, the, the the lead into this is, you know, the so what of that last thing we were talking about is yeah. that's why you should pay attention not to just what the big companies are doing, but to what small innovative startups are doing all around the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, innovation knows no borders, talent knows no borders. There are smart people, uh, talented engineers everywhere, right? Um, and so, like as you rightly pointed out, Inkutel was looking at you know, taking a, a more and more of a global view of the innovation ecosystem, if you want to call it that. And there's a lot of really in inter uh, really interesting things happening outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, Inkutel recently announced the we're standing up offices in London and Sydney, which is going to give us a you know more of a global footprint and the ability to see and engage with these things. Um, you know, but when you're talking about AI uh, and the 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 rise of AI and the global development of AI. You can't avoid talking about China, China right? Um, you know, this is this is another. And sorry to be so controversial here, Vishal. Oh uh, no, it's another fine. potentially counterintuitive uh, point. But you know, unlike with previous sort of waves of technology, um, you know, GPS and you know things like that, the United States isn't necessarily starting from a natural first place, a natural monopoly uh, with with this technology, with AI. You know, most of the best work in artificial intelligence is being done just right out in the open by academic researchers and commercial developers all around the world. Mm -hmm. They're shipping products, they're writing papers for everyone to see because that's, you know, they want eyeballs on their work to, to you know, to see how awesome it is. Right. Um, and so when we think about who are the world leaders in AI, mm -hmm. it's really coming from two places. The U.S. consumer tech giants that we talked about before, your Googles and Facebooks and so forth, and various elements of the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. um, they're investing tons of money into their quote-unquote private sector. Um, we're seeing some very, very impressive capabilities being developed by China's own sort of uh, um, startup ecosystem companies over there. Lots and lots and lots of dollars and some, some interesting capabilities coming out of that and things like... Uh, computer vision, uh, facial recognition, um, you know, smart city types of, uh, of technologies, which, you know, as an American, you know, makes you, you know, stop for a second and say, huh, I thought we were supposed to be the best, right? We were and I'm not it. saying that we're not good, but we're not the only ones that are good at this. Certainly. Uh, and and there, there's some very, very, very impressive uh, work uh, going on in, in China. And it's worth pausing and, and looking at that and thinking about how should we respond to that? Absolutely. Follow-up question to that. 
how have you seen the source of funding for a lot of this development affecting the types of work that gets done, the types of use cases that are being addressed, maybe the types of applications uh, that are being served? The source of the funding. So, you know, largely in, in the West, it's venture capital uh, dollars, right? Yes. There's, there is a lot of money available for basic research, basic, you know, science and universities and, and other research labs. Um, I, it's probably fair to say that there's more money available for commercial development from venture capitalists, uh, that sort of thing. And, you know, what motivates, uh, you know, profit-oriented investors is to see a return on those investments, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they want to see, you know, they're not just making investments out of the kindness of their hearts. They want to see these things turn into money-making machines. Sure. Again, whether through an acquisition by a big company or actually generating revenue as a, you know, an actual business. Hockey stick um, up to the right, large addressable market. That's what they want, right? And and that feeds well into some of the things that we've been talking about before. You know, the with the internet, you have the ability to access, you know, a billion potential users. If you can find, you know, that real sweet spot and product market fit, and you you build that next thing that everybody wants, right? That's right. Charlie, thank you for your time today. This has been incredibly interesting. If we could leave our listeners uh, with a with a take along, are there any resources, books, websites you recommend uh, in order to follow up on this topic or learn more? Gosh, you know, um, one thing I, I, I think about a lot, and again, way above my pay grade, but how do we as a country inspire the next generation of students to be really interested in pursuing you know, STEM degrees and engineering degrees and computer science and things that are going to be a part of uh, this future. Um, you know, in the 60s, we had the space program and the moon program to inspire, uh, you know, all of these high school students to take the harder math classes and inspire college students to, you know, take double E or, or math, physics, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if we have anything like that right now that, that can inspire people to take that sort of higher road, uh, that harder path. Um, I do think about that a lot. You know, I, I, I have children of my own, and, and um, my oldest is sort of at the age where um, we're starting to expose him to things like coding. He's actually in a program at school to, you know, at that sort of first grader, kindergartner level, like you can even start coding at that Get age. Get him started young. Right? Get him started young and, you know, um, be, put yourself in a position to influence that future as opposed to being influenced by the future. Excellent words. Charlie, thank you again for your time. To our listeners, thank you for listening. To our executive and producer staff, thank you for all that you do to make this podcast possible. I'm your host, Vishal Sandacero. We will catch you next time. Thanks again for listening.